Thank you, Beck. Thank you, Jenny, for reading the Bible so well. I keep the Bible open to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to lead us in looking at it uh, more closely. Uh, In order to help us understand God's word, uh, because it is his word, let's ask his help in prayer to understand it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that we can hear your word read and taught this morning. We ask that as we listen, we would do so with uh, soft and open hearts to what you were saying, so that we might uh, see the goodness of marriage, uh, for we who are married, to take that on board in how we live, and for we who are are not married, to think about how we can be in support of something good that you have given uh, your people and uh, your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there were good questions that Chrissy asked in Family Spot, weren't they? How long have you been married? Uh, What is a good thing about marriage? And what is a hard thing? Now, Belinda and I, we've been married for 19 and a third years. Um, What is a hard thing about marriage? Well, I guess over the years, especially uh, to begin with, but this issue hasn't gone away, uh, what I've found is that you need to make sacrifices and give things up in order for the relationship to work well. Um, Now, God graciously has taught me that as I lay things down, uh, things that I might desire or want to do uh, for the sake of the good of my wife, uh, what he has taught me is that it's not a begrudging thing. Uh, It's not, I'll lay this down and then maybe I'll I'll get something out of it later. Uh, What he's taught me is there is goodness in sacrifice uh, and that has led us through thinking and talking and praying about how we can be serving each other uh, to be enjoying more Uh, a united life. So I've kind of wrapped the tough thing in with the good thing there. Uh, The tough thing is making sacrifice, uh, but the good thing is making sacrifice because that leads Belle and I to being more united in our purpose of serving each other and people in God's world. Now, uh, the interesting thing to note is this is not a generic talk on marriage from Jesus. Uh, If we keep in mind Matthew 19's context, uh, then we're going to see that what Jesus has in mind is he's going to answer and tell us things about marriage and its goodness and what shape it should have. Uh, But in the end, when we remember what has come over the last few weeks in Matthew chapter 18, we're seeing that Jesus is teaching this at this point in time in order to reveal to people, to every human being, that we are filled with pride. And so we need to seek forgiveness from God and where appropriate from one another. Now you might remember back in chapter 18, one or two weeks ago, Jesus wanted his disciples to see that unless we become like those people in our world who have no status, unless we become like little children who are completely dependent on their father, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless we see that, spiritually speaking, we are nobodies who bring nothing to the table, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's striking that immediately following today's passage, we see the disciples discouraging little children from coming to Jesus. And in response, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So do you see the bookends to today's passage? Jesus wants us to see that we are spiritually nobodies who are completely reliant on our Father in heaven. We've got no status to speak about, no pedigree of performance or the right family 
I grew up in a Christian family. I've been to church all my life. Jesus says, that's not what my father bases entry into his kingdom on. It's the people who come to him asking for forgiveness. And so what Jesus is saying in today's verses is about relationships, but he's using that in order to humble us and help us see that we are completely reliant on our Father in heaven. So let's have a close look at what he is saying. First, he shows us the damning evidence that stands against all of humanity. In verse 1, Jesus leaves Galilee in the north and he starts to head south to the region of Judea, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And the reason why he's going to Jerusalem is because that is where his ministry is going to come to a climax. His betrayal, his trial, his suffering, his death on a cross and his resurrection are all going to happen in that city. And really, how wonderful is it that he begins this vital journey to fulfill God's plan for salvation in Jerusalem, knowing what will happen at the end of it. He's been predicting his death time and time again to his followers. And even though he knows he is heading to his death, to a terrible end as a sacrifice for sin, he he doesn't become self-centered or self-absorbed. He's always serving, always other person-centered. Have a look at verse 2. Large crowds are following him and he heals them because he is so gracious and compassionate. His great task is to bring people into the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, this is going to be achieved by his death and resurrection. But these healings, these healings that we just get a tiny little glimpse of in verse 2, they're actually um, an insight. The door has been opened into the kind of salvation that God has on offer in Jesus. It's a little snapshot of how good and rich life in his kingdom is. There is healing, salvation at the hand of Jesus. But something else is happening as Jesus moves to Jerusalem. And it becomes clearer and clearer as Jesus speaks more about the humility, the the bending the knee to Jesus and to our Father in heaven, seeking forgiveness for our sins. Jesus comes closer and closer into contact with the religious leaders, Pharisees, And the conflict with these men escalates. Their jealousy of Jesus begins to grow as the crowds around him begin to grow. Their animosity towards Jesus increases. And so their heartfelt desire is to trick Jesus and to trip him up. And so the Pharisees, they come to Jesus. They're the leading religious people of their day. The guardians of the flame, the defenders of the faith to make sure nothing changes. And these defenders of the faith, they will be flexible with the truth. They will say what needs to be said, whether it's true or not, in order to keep things the way they think it ought to be kept. And so they come to test Jesus by asking verse 3, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now I'm not sure if you or I had one question to ask God, if that would be it. Uh, But this is the question they ask because they want to trap Jesus. And it is a very loaded question. It was a question that uh, was triggered by a turf war uh, started by two rabbis, one called Shemi and the other called Hillel. Uh, They took the phrase from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24, they're quoting part of the Bible, which said a man could divorce his wife if he found some indecency in her. But these two rabbis... Uh, They interpreted the passage very, very differently. 
Shammai was conservative. Uh, he said divorce was only permissible if there was some gross indecency, some kind of massive immorality. Hillel, on the other hand, he was a little bit more of a liberal and he argued that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason if they felt that there was a complaint that they could have against this, their wife. Uh, so apparently uh, it was of the kind of complaint like if your wife burnt her meal, uh, then you could divorce her. Uh, if, she got home from the, if he got home from the synagogue and he discovered the sausages are burnt, the steak is tough, the vegetables are overcooked, uh, well then he was entitled to cast his wife out. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any and every reason? Can you see the trap that's been laid here by the Pharisees? They're saying to Jesus, go on, which half of the congregation are you going to fancy losing? Because everybody had an opinion on this topic. And of course, it wasn't just a church split kind of question. Uh, Before Christmas, we saw John the Baptist. He lost his life because he made a comment on the king's marriage choices. He married his brother's wife. And so there's no pressure, Jesus. We really want to know what you think. We're all listening. Is it lawful? to divorce your wife. Well, Jesus is very good under pressure. He points uh, people not to the rabbis, but to the place where there's authority. Not to people's interpretations, but to the word of God, the scriptures. And in the scriptures, uh, Jesus doesn't go to the law, not to Deuteronomy 24. He takes it to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, to creation. And do you notice also that Jesus doesn't talk about divorce He talks about God's purposes for marriage. And so he says in verse 4, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus completely turns everyone's thinking on its head. He did the same thing last week in chapter 18. The disciples came to him and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus sent them away, saying, Unless you recognize you're completely dependent on your Father in heaven, then you have no chance. Last week, Peter came to Jesus and asked, How many times do I need to forgive my brother? And Jesus, he completely upended the thinking. Our forgiveness as Christians is to be limitless, Jesus said. Just like God's forgiveness of you and me is without bounds. And this week, this week, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus about what the rabbis say on law and divorce. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in what the practices have been for the last hundred years. It's about what God says. I'm interested in what God says in creation about marriage. Do you see the difference? They ask about quick and easy divorce, but Jesus instead takes them to God's original blueprint, a relationship between one man and one woman in marriage for a lifetime. And do you see what Jesus is doing? He's framing the debate based on God's word. And so our passage today is not only Jesus teaching about marriage, he's also unveiling the Pharisees' pride And Jesus is adding further depth 
to what greatness in the kingdom of God is like. It's the kind of humility that is willing to accept Jesus' teaching, even on something that will cost you a lot. And in verse 4, Jesus reminds the disciples and the Pharisees and us that marriage was God-given. You see, God set out his plan for marriage right at the beginning when he created the world. And according to Jesus, by his work as creator of all things, God has determined first that humankind is going to be made with two genders, male or female. And second, that this distinction into male and female serves a purpose in marriage, which involves a man and a woman leaving their original families that they were born and raised in and then forming a brand new family. And then they become one flesh. It's the creator who said, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. God created marriage. So we mustn't relegate it to a simple social contract or a personal lifestyle choice. God designed marriage and therefore God gets to define marriage. Not me, not you, not parliament. Marriage is God-given. And then Jesus reminds us that marriage is a complementary relationship. Complementary with an E. Now, to be truthful, I had to look that up on the internet to work out if I was, what I was talking about. is complementary with an E, not to be confused with complementary with an I, as in, your hair is looking lovely this morning. Or, this is the best meal I've ever eaten. Not that kind of complementary but complementary with an E that sees the difference between men and women being brought together in a good way so that their difference actually serves a greater purpose. Each offering something that makes a whole. And so Jesus is picking up Genesis 1.27 and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 here. And he makes us, that is God, makes us male and female combined in a complementary way. A man united with his wife in a way that is not possible to be united between two people of the same gender. And Jesus draws everyone's attention to this because he wants everyone to see that marriage is a union between one man and one woman where the difference between them makes the marriage. So marriage is God-given. Marriage is complementary. And marriage is exclusive. In verse 5, the man and woman in marriage create a new allegiance in a new family where they become one flesh. And what does it mean to become one flesh? Well, it certainly includes that idea of a man and a woman's sexual union. But it's actually much bigger than that too. To become one flesh is that kind of intimate joining together in every way that happens in marriage. So not just a partnership. A partnership pictures cooperation between two equals. But God is speaking about a union, a oneness that sees people who were previously two brought together to become one. And that word united has the sense of being glued together so strongly there is no room for anyone else. Marriage was designed by God to unite the man and woman And sex actually works in a good way to help that union keep going. Marriage was designed by God. It's not that sex makes a married couple. 
It's that Jesus is saying marriage is the one and only context for marriage for, for sex. Now, if you and I were in kids' church to illustrate this closeness, this union in marriage, uh, what I could do is I could get two pieces of paper and glue them together, and then once the glue is dry, I would try tearing them apart to show you how much damage is done when you try pulling apart what God has joined it together. But I don't need to do that. Because tragically, we can see the evidence of that all around us. Our friends, our family, in the news, the kind of pain and suffering that comes about when two people have been brought together in the union of marriage. When someone comes in or someone in the marriage tries to tear that apart, then there is pain and suffering. The marriage service that we use here at our church and right across the Anglican Church in Australia underlines these three aspects of marriage. The introduction of the marriage service reminds us that it's given by God. It's complementary. And it recognises the union is of such a bond that we are cautioned not to enter into marriage lightly or selfishly, but to do it with careful thought, understanding the serious union that we're about to enter into. Because what are the promises that married people make on the day of their wedding? The husband and wife promise to cherish each other for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death separates them. And then the minister declares them to be husband and wife. Now, have you been to a wedding recently? Do you know what the minister does next? Uh, he steps forward and he joins their hands together and then he says to them and to everyone in the building, that which God has joined together, let no one separate. So when marriage is entered into, God himself is sovereignly involved. God himself is joining these two people together. Their union is not something they alone have created. God has done it. And Jesus says, no one should try and separate what God has joined together. The Pharisees, they've come to try and trap Jesus by asking them about quick and easy divorce. And Jesus reminds them, no, that's not God's plan for marriage. It's not serial monogamy of one partner after another. God's great intention is to see a man and a woman come together in marriage of service for life. And we see here that their very attitude, the Pharisees' very attitude to marriage exposes their attitude to God. And it's damning evidence that Jesus uses to shatter human pride. And this takes us to our second point. We've seen the damning evidence of human pride, now the verdict. The religious leaders, they don't take Jesus' words lying down. Uh, look at verse 7. Why then, the Pharisees ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They say, yes, Jesus, we've read our Bibles, we know Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, we managed to get as far as Deuteronomy chapter 24. And didn't Moses there command that a man could write a certificate of divorce and send her away? Are you saying that Moses got it wrong? Why open the door? 
on divorce if it's not an option? Do you, Jesus, really know your Bible? Well, we've got to get up pretty early in the morning to trap Jesus. And so he goes on to contrast God's intention for marriage with the hard hearts of the Pharisees in verse 8. Did you notice that Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard? But it wasn't that way from the beginning. And the Pharisees, they used the word commanded. But Moses never commanded divorce at all. Moses understood the reality of hard hearts. He knew that some men threw out their wives on the weakest and most self-serving of principles. You disappointed me in some way. You didn't do what I wanted. I'd prefer the younger model. I just want to park this so that I can go and have an affair. So Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to protect the vulnerable person from lousy husbands. But still the question remains. If Genesis 1 and 2 teach so clearly that marriage is meant to be something that lasts for life, why does the Old Testament law even open up separation and divorce as an option? And the answer to that is sobering. We no longer live in the world of Genesis 1 and 2. We live in the world of Genesis 3 and 4. Where all human relationships, including human marriages, groan terribly under the effects of sin and rebellion against God. As Jesus says in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts are hard. And in a world where sin exists, relationships are terribly difficult for us. Marriage is difficult. Sometimes they fail because the problem of sin is universal and it goes down to the very depths of our own hearts. And so this means that there may be times when a person in a marriage needs to remove themselves in order to protect themselves from a difficult, from a dangerous situation. And there may be times when when one partner acts in such a way that the whole marriage breaks down because they're not even acting like a husband or wife anymore. Paul outlines that in more detail in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm happy to talk about that with you in morning tea. Pardon me, but let's go back to the questions the Pharisees asked. Can I divorce my wife for any and every reason? And friends, remember the distinction in Jesus' answer. Moses did not command divorce. Moses permitted divorce. In fact, if you search the scriptures, you'll find that nowhere does God command divorce. Uh, My children are allowed to watch an episode of TV on Saturday or Sunday. Can I tell you that Bill or I have never commanded our children to watch television? They probably wish that was the case. Uh, But in fact, we look to limit their screen time. Because we know that too much isn't very good for them. Do you see, a concession is not the same as the ideal. It was never God's intention for couples to break up. But because God knows what we are like, and because he knows our hearts are sinful, he graciously gave us instructions on how we should act when particular kinds of sin take hold. Divorce is a concession because human hearts are hard. Divorce is always a bad and painful thing. And even if we conclude that divorce is the wisest 
thing in certain circumstances. We must remember that even when there's been sexual immorality, according to Jesus, it's not a foregone conclusion that marriage will end up in divorce. Forgiveness and reconciliation remains an option for people who live by the gospel of reconciliation. Remember where Matthew 19 is located. What comes just before today's passage? Always ask yourself that question. What is it that Jesus has just been teaching? And what was Matthew 18 about? It's about forgiveness. And so in marriage, the first step is not divorce even if for some time you need to separate so that you can relearn how to glue together, it's not divorce. That's not the first step. So that means we work at our marriages. We work and we repent and we forgive and we reconcile and we forgive. We have been forgiven much through the cross of Christ. And next, there is a statement from the disciples And there is a good question in this statement. The question is, do you believe marriage is good? Look at the statement that the disciples make in verse 10. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. They are so utterly shocked by what Jesus says. Marriage is coming together to make every effort to serve the other person. What God brings together... Try not to separate. Do not separate. And so they are utterly in step with the Pharisees of their day. They see marriage as simply a construction, a constriction of their freedom. They see that marriage in the hard times is an unhappy thing. They see that commitment through the tough times can lead to being miserable. And we too, we're completely bombarded with the view that commitment isn't a good thing. Just in everyday things. A couple of months ago, I had to renew the insurance on my car. Uh, It's just amazing. There's no commitment to loyalty established in things in our society anymore. Uh, My insurance company, they nearly doubled the insurance premium because they thought that I wouldn't uh, click on the attachment to the email telling me that it was renewal time. They'd hope I'd just take the easy one-click pay the insurance premium option. But then I shopped around using one of those comparison websites Uh, that shows you all the different options that there are. And I found that I could get insurance for nearly half the price. It seems like there are incentives built into our society in many, many different ways to teach us that shopping around is a good thing to do. And so when the disciples hear Jesus say, be committed to her, they recoil. You mean that I have to commit to her even when she's like that? Do you see how selfish their hearts are? Jesus is revealing the true state of their heart. And if being married has taught me anything, it has given me a terrible picture of how selfish I am. Marriage difficulties reveal our sin. We just want a spouse who does everything I want. It's not two becoming one. It's her becoming my servant. But Jesus answers the disciples and his answer takes the matter even deeper. The disciples, they've recoiled at the idea of lifelong commitment and Jesus says, yes, Christian marriage is radical. 
Not everyone can accept marriage as God-given, that it's complementary and that it's exclusive. Yet, as good as marriage is, Jesus says there is something else that should be even more exciting than uh, marriage, and that's the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 12. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The disciples say, well, you know what? I should stay single because marriage looks too hard. And Jesus says, no. The reason to stay single is because of the opportunities to serve the kingdom of God. Because remember, greatness in the kingdom is living for the kingdom and the king. Do you see how radical Jesus' teaching is in chapters 18 and 19? Not everyone in our culture can accept that marriage is a union of one man and one woman in marriage for a lifetime, but Christ calls on us to submit to our creator, not to our culture. So whatever our relationship status, whether we're single or married or divorced, we start submitting to God by admitting that all of us have hard hearts, like the Pharisees and like the disciples. And what does Jesus say to the respectable Pharisees? He says, I want you to see that your attitude to marriage and your practice to marriage actually reveals a deeper issue. You see, all of us have a universal condition. We're filled with pride before God and we don't want to accept his word. And so Jesus doesn't talk about divorce in order to shame those whose marriages have failed. He's not wagging his finger like your primary school teacher. No, he knows our hearts and he wants to show us the truth that we all need God's grace. He wants to humble us to be like little children and that's the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Hello, little child. (laughs) Perfect timing in God's providence. Christ comes into the world in order to reveal our hard hearts Not to shame us, but to show us the forgiveness that he offers through his death and resurrection. Complete forgiveness for all of our sins is what is at the heart of this part of Matthew 19. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you made marriage good and that for many of us you have given us the gift of marriage. We ask that we uh, might live in a selfless and sacrificial way towards the spouse that you have given us. Please give us the wisdom and strength to know how to serve in our particular situation uh, so that we might live for your glory. Father, we pray for each one of us, uh, whatever our um, relationship status might be, that we might see the goodness of living for your kingdom as someone who is completely dependent on you like a little child. Please continue to reveal our sin to us so that we might seek your forgiveness, the forgiveness of those we sin against, and to offer forgiveness uh, in our turn. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.